0: Welcome and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning. Open your Bibles to 2nd uh, Thessalonians. We have been in Paul's letter letters to the church in Thessalonica for a number of weeks. Last week, the Holy Ghost interrupted, and we had a wonderful time of praise and worship and testimony. And the week before that, uh, God led me in a different direction to share with you some things about our confession. And so now here, three weeks after I was, uh, uh, thought I was ready to give this sermon, here it is. On a on a very interesting passage. Just a quick quick review. These two letters to the believers in Thessalonica were written early in Paul's ministry. Probably the first two things we have that Paul wrote are these these two letters, and uh, they were written after spending a relatively short amount of time with them, and uh, written more or less back to back. So not only was First Thessalonians written. Uh, not long after he had spent a little time with them, but then 2 Thessalonians was maybe a couple weeks later. Uh, It was just kind of a continuation. Paul was concerned about them, partly because he did not spend, for instance, the time that he spent with the Ephesians, the time that he spent with the Corinthians. He didn't spend a year and a half, two years with them. He was there for a few weeks probably and got a great response Great immediate response, but he also had warned them that persecution was coming. He'd shared some things with them, and he himself had witnessed persecution in other churches. He had certainly experienced persecution himself, and he began to be concerned, how are the Thessalonians holding up? So finally, when he couldn't stand it any longer, he sends Timothy to go check them out and bring back a report and the report was good not only had they continued to cling to their confession of faith but they had been living it out they'd been living the gospel and preaching the gospel to such an extent that paul had already visited places where he thought he was going to introduce the gospel but the thessalonians had already shared it so he didn't have to say anything so most of this letter and the opening uh, anyway is great job be encouraged i'm proud of you uh And so then in uh, Thessalonians, there's some warnings in there uh, also about sexual purity. And then toward the end, some comforting words about the second coming of Christ. They were very much concerned, very much interested, maybe even uh, nearly obsessed with the second coming. And there, they were absolutely convinced he was coming back any day. They were eager uh, anticipating the second coming. This is part of what propelled them to share so, uh, so quickly and so eagerly with people, even in the face of tribulation. But then they started to worry as people began to die. Hey, what happens? They're going to miss the second coming. So in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes this section about, don't worry about that. Nobody, no believer is going to miss the resurrection, whether they're, whether they're alive or dead. Uh, when Jesus comes back, the resurrection, in fact, those who died in Christ, they will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will meet them in the air. So we'll all be together forever with Jesus after that. And uh, so he straightens them out on that. And then, uh, and he tells them that when he comes, it'll be suddenly. This is something, so, so they need to walk circumspectly because it still could happen at any time. And then he writes this second letter, again, beginning with encouragement. He acknowledges that they're still suffering persecution, but reminds them that the Lord sees it too. And that when he comes back, he'll straighten all that out too. He will uh, visit his wrath on those who have persecuted his church and not repented. So then we finally come to this, uh, one of the most important, one of the most argued about passages about the last days. It's almost certainly one of the most difficult passages in Paul's writing. So let's go ahead and read it first in Second Th- Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll just begin in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, I'm sorry, what the heck am I at? I'm in the completely wrong book here. I knew that didn't sound right. I figured if I kept reading, it would suddenly, a uh, light would go off, and it finally did. The light said, you're in the wrong book, Pastor Scott, way in the wrong book. Uh, not, even in the right Thess- not even in the wrong Thessalonians. Okay. Let's start all over. Paul wrote these two letters to, no, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to, be, uh, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either in spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way." And then the lawless one, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with the unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now there's awfully there's an awful lot of stuff there. But he starts this, you'll notice, by acknowledging that apparently they were upset. There were rumors. Remember the first time he writes them about the second coming? He says, don't worry about the people who've died. They're not going to miss it. Now, he's addressing another side of this trouble, which is there are some who have begun to believe that Jesus already has come back. They're believing it because he's heard it. And Paul's telling them, I don't want you to be shaken by that, no matter why you believe it. And he indicates that some people have heard some things. Some people have just, they've, they've, a rumor. Some, it looks like, have presented a letter saying, Paul wrote this. And Paul's saying, if it says that, I didn't write it. And some, of it says, by spirit. So maybe some have tried this, thus saith the Lord. I am already back. I have returned in secret. If you seek me, you will find me. And Paul's saying, that's not how it's going to work. He is going to come back, and he's going to come back suddenly. But he's not going to come back secretly. And I believe it soon, Paul's saying. You believe it soon but there are certain things that have to happen first. So don't be shaken. If these things haven't happened, even though all this could happen quickly, there is an order. And, and he's not, the day of the Lord is not going to come back for one thing until there is this falling away. All right. I want you to look back in, uh, first of all, back in first Thessalonians. He's, uh, already described Jesus descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And here in 2 Thessalonians, he has written about Jesus coming with his angels in flaming fire. Back in chapter 1, I said 1 Thessalonians, I meant 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, when he comes in that day to be glorified in, in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Because our testimony among you was believed. So, Uh, That's the point. Don't worry. Not some secret second coming. When he comes, you will know. Now, one thing that has to happen first, he says, is the falling away or the apostasy. Most of you have heard of this, heard of the great falling away, the great apostasy. Uh, And what is it? Well, uh, another way of saying apostasy would be uh, backsliding. Backsliding would be a, a, a mild way of putting it. Apostasy really is to turn your back to leave the faith. And this opens up some theological problems. Some people deal with this passage by saying, he's really just talking about the Jews. The Jews that we're beginning to believe will reject Christianity and cling to their Judaism. Does not really fit the scenario, the broader applications of this passage? So I don't think that's the way to look at it. Um, I think... uh, The reason some people have a problem with the whole idea of the falling away, falling away from Christianity, is they are very much convinced in the once saved, always saved. If you got saved, you can't fall away. You might backslide a little. You might still struggle in some areas. But you can never really lose your faith in God. Now, I don't really believe that. I believe nothing can take us out of the hand of God. And I believe God will not cast us away. But I also believe he won't hold us against our will. I believe you can lose your salvation, but only by consciously rejecting your salvation. And I think this is part of what will come. I don't think it's the whole answer. And I'm going to give you what I think is the whole answer a little bit later. But let me caution you by saying that there is at least a little bit of conjecture here. I'm going to tell you what I think makes the most sense, but I encourage you to study this out. I always want to encourage you to study these things out. The reason this is such an argued-about passage is he's vague, and I'm going to tell you why I think he's vague uh, on purpose in at least one area. But meanwhile, there is going to be a falling away. Uh, Some people would say, well, the falling away are people who maybe." thought they were Christians, but they never really were saved in the first place. Maybe, I really think it's going to look like what we are seeing right now. There is a question of what a person believed, when they believed. I know people who used to believe, people that I was convinced, and I remain convinced, really did have a salvation experience, but who are not walking or even confessing Christ today. What about them? Are they saved and they just don't know it? Were they never really saved? Or were they saved and lost their salvation? I'm not really interested in wasting time trying to figure out if they got saved in the first place. I go back to something I've quoted a number of times before, which is this. When we talk about the great falling away and others talk about the great end time harvest, who is right? We're both right. Um... Tim Keller, I mentioned him, I don't know if it was on a Sunday, I think it was on a Wednesday night, who talks about what we're going to see is is a polarization. What we have, even today, much less than it was 20 or certainly 40 years ago, is a largely Christian society, a Western society that is still rooted in the Judeo-Christian worldview. And so there are many people who have called themselves Christians for years, who when they are really confronted with what the gospel means, will finally just stand up and say, why play these games anymore? I'm not a Christian, so why call myself a Christian? And so there won't be so many of these nominal Christians. There will be Christians, and there will be non-Christians. And among the non-Christians will be anti-Christians. And we're just going to see this polarization. Even while the number of believers continues to grow, there will also be a great falling away. I told you the story the other day uh, a couple of Wednesdays ago, I think, about this, uh, this Facebook page called Deep Thoughts that I was invited to join. I thought it was supposed to be this friendly exchange of ideas, and all it really turned out to be was a bunch of atheists patting themselves on the back. And all I did, somebody said, I'm nervous about coming out as an atheist in this, you know, in this society. I think it'll be really tough. And, and all I did was ask a question, why do you think it would be tough in this society? And it seems like... This is the safest time and safest place to be an atheist there ever has been in history. And nobody even answered my question. They just came back with, oh, I see you're a Christian. Uh, I think you should be put in prison. I think you should be shot. I see, Oh, I see you're a youth pastor. You should definitely be in prison because you're poisoning young minds. And I'm like, this is, this is supposed to be rational, reasoned discussion? It's crazy. I want to read you. Uh, I I talked about that already in the real world there are leaders discussing how while they would never interfere with people's right to believe or practice their religion, they are concerned that we are indoctrinating our children to believe the same thing. And they are already planning to intervene against that sort of thing. Interestingly, they are having these discussions almost exclusively about the Christian West. Nobody's talking about interfering with a Muslim's right to raise their children as Muslims. I'm going to read you, this is a long section, but it isn't the whole essay. But I do want to read you, this is part of an essay I just read in the last couple weeks, and I'll pick it up here, where he where says this, there is no better term than propaganda blitzkrieg to describe what has been unleashed against Christian conservatives recently consider the long list of anti-Christian books that have been published in recent months. Here are just, a sam- are just a few samples of more than 30 similar titles all from mainstream publishers. American Fascists, the Christian Right and the War on America. The Baptizing of America, the Religious Rights Plans for the Rest of Us. The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. Piety and Politics, the right wing assault on religious freedom. Atheist Universe, the thinking person's answer to Christian fundamentalism. Thy Kingdom Come, how the religious right distorts the faith and threatens America. And finally, Religion Gone Bad, Hidden Dangers of the Christian Right. And he goes on to say this What is truly alarming is that there are more of these books for sale at your local large bookstore, warning against the perils of fervent Christianity. Than those warning against the perils of fervent Islam. Does anyone seriously think America is more seriously jeopardized by Christian conservatives than by Islamic zealots? I fear that many Americans believe believe just that in the same way that many pre World War II Westerners considered Churchill a bigger threat than Hitler. Some may say that today's proliferation of anti-Christian print propaganda is nothing to be worried about. To them, I ask two questions. First, would you be so sanguine if the target of this loathsome library were Jewish? Just try changing the titles in some of the books I mentioned above to reflect anti-Semitism instead of rampant anti-Christianism, and you'll see what I mean. And can you imagine the outcry? How to answer uh, fundamental Jews. The right-wing assault, wait, the Jewish assault on religious freedom. The thinking person's answer to Jewish fundamentalism. Oh my goodness, people would be uh, skewered if they came out and said things like that. Second, major movements that changed the way Americans felt and acted came about through books, often only one book. Think of Rachel Carson's 1962 error-filled Silent Spring that resulted in the pointless banning of the insecticide DDT and many unnecessary deaths. Other books that caused upheavals in our nation were Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, many of Ayn Rand's books, and, of course, Uncle Tom's Cabin. No, I would advise you not to underestimate the power of books to alter the behavior of the American public, and I fear for an America influenced to detest Christianity by this hate-filled catalog. Even the recent PBS documentary, Anti-Semitism in the 21st Century, The Resurgence, managed to do more attacking Christianity than defending Judaism. Richard Dawkins, an Oxford University professor, is one of the generals in the anti-Christian army of the secular left. American academia treats him with reverence and hangs on his every word when he insists that religious myths ought not to be tolerated. For those with with a slightly more tolerant outlook, he asks, it's one thing to say people should be free to believe whatever they like, but should they be free to impose their beliefs on their children? He suggests that the state should intervene to protect children from their parents' religious beliefs. Needless to say, he means Christian beliefs, of course. Muslim beliefs add to England's charmingly diverse cultural landscape. The war is against those who regard the Bible to be God's revelation to humanity and the Ten Commandments to be his set of rules for all time. Phase one in this war is to make Christianity, well, sort of socially unacceptable, something only foolish, poor, and ugly people could turn to. We have seen how a few carefully constructed camp- uh, how a carefully constructed campaign pretty much made it socially unacceptable to drink and drive. For years, there had been stringent laws against drunk driving. They achieved little. In the end, the practice was all but eliminated by groups allied with Mothers Against Drunk Driving and their effective ways of changing the way Americans thought about it. We have seen how a carefully constructed campaign has pretty much made it socially unacceptable to smoke. In the face of a relentless campaign, dare one call it propaganda, Americans became docile and forfeited the right to make their own decisions. No one was willing to stand up to the no-smoking tyrants. Nobody even asked whether health was sufficient grounds for freedom to be reduced. Now, entire cities and even states have banned smoking not only in public places, but even in privately owned restaurants tyranny comes when citizens are seduced into trading freedom for the promise of safety and security and i don't think he's advocating for smoking there you understand just the way it came about considerably more intellectual energy i'm about done with this quote by the way (laughs) considerably more intellectual energy is being pumped into the propaganda campaign against christianity than was ever delivered to the anti-smoking or anti-drunk driving campaigns Fervent zealots of secularism are flinging themselves into this anti-Christian war with enormous fanaticism. If they succeed, Christianity will be driven underground and its benign influence on the character of America will be lost. In its place, we shall see a sinister secularism that menaces Bible believers of all faiths. Once the voice of the Bible has been silenced, the war on Western civilization can begin and we shall see a long night of barbarism descend on the West. Listen to this with these closing words. Without a vibrant and vital Christianity, America is doomed. And without America, the West is doomed. Which is why I, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, devoted to Jewish survival, the Torah and Israel, am so terrified of American Christianity caving in. Many of us Jews are ready to stand with you, but you must lead. You must replace your timidity with nerve and your diffidence with daring and determination. You are under attack. Now is the time to resist it. Written by a Jewish rabbi 12 years ago and I read it on a Catholic website. Anybody think he's exaggerating? So on one hand, the falling away is not just certainly not just the Jews falling away from the faith in Paul's day. It's not even really just Christians who are falling away from their own faith. It's the falling away, in a larger sense, of those who, even if they didn't have a personal experience with Christ, still adhered to the Christian worldview. Which has been, as he, as he rightly says, had the, has this... Uh, uh, this uh, good effect on society, a benign effect on society, even those t- to those who don't confess Christ. This idea that Christianity is nothing historically but a long string of murder and genocide and horror is an absolute twisting. It's, not just twi- it's turning everything upside down. The influence of Christianity on society has been overwhelmingly positive and civilizing and now we're going to be we're going to turn our backs on that in the in the apostasy society itself will fail to see the good that christianity has done and become very anti-christian so i also believe that many who thought they were christians will find that their faith is not robust enough to withstand the strain of persecution and again, we can argue if you want. I don't think it's, it's worth anything to argue about were they, they really saved in the first place. So again, before Jesus returns, this great falling away must take place. Is it happening? I certainly believe it has begun. Now, back in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Yeah, let me, yeah. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. This is the Antichrist. He is spoken of, uh, again, of course, in Revelation. He's referenced in Daniel. Uh, You think, you maybe get this idea, and this is a very Western mindset, that people just want to be left alone and take care of themselves. Nope. Nope. We are made to respond to leadership. We are made that way, and it's what we're supposed to do is seek God. You know, we've got that God-shaped hole. We long to be told what to do, even if we think we don't want to be told what to do. We are made to respond to authority. We are made to respond to divine authority. But if we reject divine authority, we will consciously or subconsciously look for somebody else to tell us what to do. We will look for leadership somewhere, and there's no shortage of people who want to step into that role. History's full of them, right? And uh, in some, I believe, not too distant future, a powerful leader will arise. And I said, we'll we'll speak more about him in Revelation, but we do see some things about him here. Uh, I don't believe, when it talks about sitting on the throne, I'm not 100% convinced that this means he's actually going to present himself as a Jewish Messiah I think what he's going to be talks about anything that anybody worships, anything that calls itself God, he's going to come against and essentially set himself up as God we don't need no stinking God you just need me and the time is going to be right the circumstances are going to be right for people to very much respond to him look to him and submit to him um Let me say this before I explain that a little bit more. In verse 5, it says this, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? This is what makes this passage so difficult, is that Paul is clearly referring to something he taught them when he was with them, and we don't have that teaching. We have Paul saying, remember what I told you when I was with you? But we weren't with him then, and we don't have what he told them when he was with him. We just have these letters afterward. And in verse 6 and 7, it says, Now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So we've got this powerful leader coming. At some point, the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the lawless one. And something is restraining him. He could show up now, but there is a restrainer. And this is probably the big question of this whole passage is who or what is the one who restrains? Now, the pre-trib answer. We, we look at this and this, I don't have time to do a whole teaching on this. I'm, I apologize for those of you who have no idea, but most of you have some clue or some concept of the last days. This goes back to Daniel. When he talks about the 70 weeks are determined for your people. And there are 69 of them have been fulfilled in prophecy. So what we are looking for is what's known as Daniel's 70th week. Meaning a week of years or a seven year period. There is a seven year period of time in that Daniel prophecy that is still not taken place. And we call these the last days. This last seven year period. The last three and a half years of that seven year period is what's called the great Tribulation. There is no such thing in the Bible as a seven-year tribulation. There's a seven-year period of time, and the last half of that is the great tribulation. And we believe that it is during that tribulation that the Antichrist comes to full power. And that a lot of the hell that is unleashed on earth by Satan is done through this man of sin, the son of perdition. Okay? So, what, uh, what has been taught is... And it makes a great deal of sense. I believed it for years, and I'm not prepared to say this is absolutely not the answer. Okay, I think you'll see how it makes sense. Is that we are the restraining force. In order, you know, God is more powerful than the devil. We have authority on the earth, right? Word of faith. And so, before the devil can be let loose, before he can get the kind of uh, uh, the free reign, that is described in this uh, period of tribulation, the, res- the restraint has to be moved. And that means the church has to be taken out of the way because he can't possibly do all these horrible things with an authoritative, powerful, spirit-filled church on the earth. In fact, some people have gone so far to say, "Is well, it's the Holy Spirit that's the restrainer, but he lives in us. He's not going to leave us, so he pulls us out. He takes us with him, and then without God on the earth, the devil goes crazy. The problem with that, with taking it that far, is the Holy Spirit's still going to be active on the earth during the tribulation. We know this because the Bible clearly tells us that people will be saved during the tribulation. And you can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. All right? Question is, are we going to be here? Well, I think... uh, You know, for one thing, in Daniel 7.25, can we put that up there? Did I give you that scripture? Rather than turn back to it, I'll read it off the screen. And this is Daniel describing uh, describing this period. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's a funny biblical way of saying three and a half years time is a year, times is two years, and half a time is half a year. So there's our warning. Now, it's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. If we've been given the word of faith, we've been given authority in the Holy Ghost, and then it turns around here, that the saints shall be given into his hand for three and a half years. It's a tough pill to swallow, but I think that's pretty much what Scripture is saying is, the believers, the saints who are around, who are still alive on the earth at that time, are going to be under the thumb to a degree. The Holy Spirit will never leave us or forsake us. But we are not going, and this is a a harder thing for us in the West to get our minds around because we as Christians have never been under anybody's thumb. We're just now starting to get the slightest little taste of that. But Christianity will be despised. And those of us who openly profess our faith, who are here, who are alive and remain, uh, will be given into his hand for three and a half years. I think that's the, uncomfortable as, as it is, that's the answer. It's just something that has been prophesied, it's stated. It doesn't 100% make sense to me, but that, and I think it's the clearest reading of that scripture rather than, this getting, than us just getting out of here. Is it the Holy Spirit who restrains? Is it the church that restrains? I don't think scripture bears that out. Um, some say that really all the restrainer is, is time. Since God has set a time for the Antichrist, and since to, to everything there is a time, everything there is a season, this just simply won't happen until the fullness of time. Jesus himself, the advent, didn't come until the fullness of time. And so therefore, the restraint is simply God's will and God's timing and if you just take the first part of this in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter, or verse uh, 6, where it says, now you know what is restraining, uh, where was that? You know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. You know what is restraining, that he, the man of sin, may be revealed in his own time. Well, that could be the will of God. That could be God's timing. Unfortunately, uh, that's, it also says in verse 7, He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. This indicates to me that there's something more than simply God's timing here. I think there's an individual or a personality or an, or an institution that has to be removed for the man of sin to be revealed. And... The question then is, why the veiled language? Why doesn't he just come out and say it? I understand he taught it to him when he was with him. Why couldn't he say, and you know, the restrainer, instead of saying the restrainer and he, why didn't he say, you know, it's not God's timing yet. Or you know, it's the Holy Spirit. He just says the restrainer until he's taken out of the way. Well, I think the reason it's not, uh, the reason it's veiled is that the answer is this. I think the answer, the restrainer, is government. Human government. In Paul's case, it was Rome. And so if he wrote openly about Rome being taken out of the way, how could that be interpreted by the Roman authorities? Ah, they're planning to rebel. They're planning to overthrow. They're trying to take Caesar out of the way. And that wasn't Paul's gig at all. That wasn't where he was going. Now, he might have actually thought it was Rome itself. But I think Rome in Paul's day stands for government in our day. Remember this. As much of a headache as they are, human governments were God's idea. Tells us clearly that in, in, in the book of Romans. That human government actually serves to, uh, uh, to uphold, You know, and it doesn't always work, human government. The big flaw with human government is the human part. Uh, it's, it's fallen mankind who's occupying these seats of power. But the, the power structures are there. You know, he doesn't bear the sword in vain. You know, the, 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 you don't have to worry about the cops if you're not committing a, a crime. And we know how well that works in our society, some places and sometimes better than others. And certainly our society is one of the better ones. But these governments are there to enforce laws and protect people, even if people don't have the moral framework of the word of God like you and I have. And so, even, so, in a democracy or democratically elected representative republic like the United States of America, even though people might say some nasty things about us, this is still a good time and place to be a Christian. We're still safe. We're still free. And the government, in many cases, will protect our rights as Christians. For now. And, but it's not just here. There's religious freedom. There, there are governments that protect religious freedom in other parts of the world. And there is at least an order. There are, there are pockets of disorder in the world. But some are saying, some secular uh, uh, writers have, have written some great articles about, you know, people talk about all the doom and gloom. Here's ten ways the world is getting better. And they talk about more access to water, better food, better medical care, longer lives, all this stuff. And... Uh, major improvements in human rights in a lot of parts of the world. Not everywhere, obviously. So when we talk about, for instance, the balance of power, because there's more than one government in the world, what we mean is is, uh, something that's going to keep us from just annihilating one another. In order for somebody like the man of sin, the Antichrist, to rise to this level of power that the Bible talks about, There's going to have to be some major realigning of world powers or, and or, a devastating event or series of events that leaves a huge vacuum of leadership. Talking about a nuclear war, uh, a pandemic, natural disasters, or all of these resulting in famine and drought. There are a number of of scenarios we can imagine, and we don't have to work too hard, thanks to movies and books these days, to talk about these post-apocalyptic landscapes. And we're going to need a leader. There's a great, Rainey loves this story, Uh, and many of you have heard it. I don't think I've ever told it from the pulpit. I may have. I'm going to tell it again. But there's there's a passage in Revelation where John says, I saw a great fiery mountain, strike the waters. Remember this? I saw a great, uh, a flaming mountain, or a mountain on fire strike the waters and poisoned uh, a third of the waters or a fourth of the waters. I I can't remember. Poisoned a third of the waters on earth. And the mountain's name was Wormwood. Wormwood. And, uh, Well, what's what's he seeing? What's he describing there? Saw a mountain strike the waters and poison a third of the waters. Well, and this is an idea that I I read in a book by Pat Robertson years ago. Talked about uh, uh, what happened in Chernobyl. Of course, you know, the greatest nuclear disaster, power uh, disaster, total meltdown, explosion, explosion. It radiated, poisoned water, poisoned air, poisoned the ground, po- you know, caused birth defects. I forget how many tens or even hundreds of thousands of people were affected by this. And this was just one nuclear power plant. And it was, just, and it was human error. Then we get a taste of what happens when a natural disaster, like in the, over in Japan after the tsunami, the Fukushima nuclear power plant and all the radiation that leaked out there. And these are things that just happen on Earth. Now... Seems like uh, twice a year at least, I see an article on the news about scientists have seen an asteroid that has a one in 100 chance of striking Earth. It's next time through, the solar, through our neighborhood of the solar system. And I, every, and I always read these because I love astronomy articles. Every single one of them says we know there is going to be another asteroid impact. It's never a question of if. It's only a question of when. We are overdue. We are overdue for a major volcanic eruption in, in the United States over the, the Yellowstone, right? That huge, uh, what's it called, the Caldera, Yellowstone Caldera, where we could, it could blow up half the continent or something like that. We are overdue for a major asteroid or comet strike. And what happens if it's big enough and causes massive earthquakes, vol- volcanic activity, and releases all this nuclear material? What's going to happen to our water supply, our food supply? And this was the fun part. This is the part that gives rainy goosebumps. Do you know what the word Chernobyl means? Wormwood. Roughly, rough, rough translation. So I think maybe God gives us a clue there. But all these things could happen, all these things that, that it just wouldn't take long. And in the panic, could it, could it cause nuclear war? People think of the whole world's uh everything's going down the tube so quickly what have we got to lose let's let's make our bid for power and the next thing you know billions of people are dead people that are remaining are starving and nobody knows what to do and in the midst of this a strong leader rises up and says i can fix this and he demonstrates with signs and wonders Now, it says lying signs and wonders and miracles. That could mean one of two things. It could mean that they're tricks made to look like signs, wonders, and miracles, but they really aren't. I think they are actual supernatural events that take place, but the message they they point to is a lie. The devil has power. Did you know that? He just doesn't have authority. He doesn't have any authority that you and I don't give him. He can do some things. And I think he's going to demonstrate his power through this antichrist. And people are going to be drawn, and they're going to be drawn because they're desperate. We need somebody to lead us through this mess. And he'll say, I can get you there. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. All you got to do is worship me like I'm God. We know God didn't do anything to help us. What's the point in staying loyal to him? I'm a man like you are. I'm on your side. Follow me. So it's kind of scary when you think about it. And and, and I'm not giving you just some general ideas. I'm not telling you this is what's going to happen. I'm telling you, use your imagination. You can see it doesn't, it wouldn't take long. We're not talking about something that needs to take place over the next 10 years. This is something that could begin tomorrow. But in the middle of all that scary stuff, I want you to see the most important thing that Paul says, says about this guy. We're in chapter 2, verse 8, and it said, And then the lawless lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Never forget that. (laughs) And let me wrap this up. Oh, my goodness, we've been in this a while. I'm going to read another section here. But I want you to see how Paul wraps this up. Now that he's said, look, number one, What's his whole point? Remember this. What's his whole point? He hasn't come back yet. I'm glad you're on the lookout. I want you to be concerned. Don't be afraid. He's not going to come back. When he comes back, you'll know it. And you'll know we're getting closer when these things happen. There's going to be the great apostasy. The man of sin is going to be revealed. By the way, the lawless one, when I talk about the governments having to be kind of shoved aside... The, the, uh, the Message Bible has an interesting translation. Instead of calling him the lawless one, the son of perdition, or the Antichrist, it calls him the anarchist. The lawless one. And it's, I think it's super important to recognize, I cannot see how he can arise until laws are pretty much done with. Then those who enforce force them, meaning government. I would say he's the man without government. All right. So um, let, me, let me. So he lays all this stuff out. He's not back yet. This will happen first, and don't be afraid. In in light of all this scary stuff you just read, begin here in verse 13 of chapter two. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. In the truth to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or, or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our, Lord God, and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Skip to uh, verse 6 of chapter 3. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they ought to work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him. That he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is what's amazing to me about this. He just lays this incredible prophetic word about the last days, the return of Christ, the Antichrist, the apostasy. This is all gonna happen, and Jesus is gonna come and destroy him with the word of the mouth. What do we do with that? Go to work. If you don't work, don't eat. Stay busy, live quietly. Kind of goes back to what he said in the first letter make it your ambition. To lead a quiet life, mind your own business. What's the connection here? Paul, you just told us about all this stuff. He was saying, and this is something that, that we can kind of relate to. You know, you've, you ever heard this? What if you knew today was your last day on earth? What if you knew for sure that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Would you go to work? No, you'd spend all day, hopefully, preaching the gospel, writing letters, calling people, doing everything to bring one last person into the kingdom. And Paul's saying, since we don't know, you can't live like that. These, the Thessalonians were very, very much obsessed with the idea of the second coming and the resurrection. And that part was good. But Paul's saying, you cannot let that obsession, good as it is, keep you from living the kind of life that you have to live as a responsible citizen. Yes, believe it, look forward to it, anticipate it, share the gospel. But meanwhile, work your job, earn your money, feed your family. Don't just toss all this stuff aside because it hasn't happened yet and there's some things that have to happen first. Live your life in a way that's an example to others. I love that he says, this could, that he doesn't say, this could happen at any time, so get those bunkers built. Go to work. Eat your bread in quietness. In verse, uh, I'll wrap this up. Might as well just finish this. Now may the Lord of peace himself, verse 16, give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. There's that uh, salutation of Paul. Now we know that Paul and Silas and Timothy co-wrote this, but this was from Paul. And Paul's saying, After he goes to this, uh, after he starts this second chapter with, some of you are upset because you got a letter that you thought was from me. And now he's saying, you know this is me. You know my signature. You know how I write. See how I write with my own hand. Don't take, don't read too much into that one little thing. Because what it looks like there, what what you could take it to mean, and maybe it does, I don't think it does, and I'll tell you why someday. That if it doesn't say, this is me, Paul, and this is how I write, then this isn't a letter from Paul. I'll tell you why. I think Paul wrote Hebrews, but Paul doesn't identify himself as the author of Hebrews. And some would say, well, see, Paul says right there, this is how he writes, and if he doesn't sign it with his own hand, then it's not him. When we get to Hebrews, I'll tell you why he didn't. And I'm in the minority, by the way. Most people don't think he wrote Hebrews. Anyway, what's the whole point here? You cannot trust that the favor that we now enjoy, despite what I read from that rabbi, and even though I, I, I think I agree with 100% of, of what he wrote, I can see the writing on the wall. I can see the direction we're going. I can see the hatred that's being stirred up against Christianity. This is still a great place. It's a great country. I, I, can't, I can't think of a better place to be a Christian in the world right now. We still have a lot of freedom and we have a lot of ease. And I believe it's a blessing from God. But I don't think we can count on this level of freedom and ease forever. We're not supposed to lean on those things. Our trust is in God. And it is perfectly okay to believe in a pre-trib rapture. I'm not 100% convinced. I lean toward post-trib. I lean toward the belief that we're going to be here for the tribulation. I hope I'm wrong. I don't want to be here for the tribulation. I'm just trying to follow closely with with, with what scripture says. It's fine. You're not going to go to hell for believing in a pre-trib rapture. The danger, and Paul kind of hints at this, is that can make us lazy. If all we think Christianity is is walking in favor and protection and and abundance and supply and healing and all those things are ours, then as soon as things get tough, we're going to think, oh, well, I don't have to put up with this long. God's going to get us out of here. And we're not toughened up. We're not ready. We're not prepared. And then when things get really bad, will we find ourselves among those who fall away? So, prepare for the worst, believe for the best. Prepare for being here for the tribulation, and pray for the rapture. I'm not going to change God's mind about that. It is or it isn't, okay? Because if we're going to be here, we need to be strong. And there's nothing you can do through diet, exercise, or discipline to make yourself stronger. You've got to be strong in the power of His might. You've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.